0: Well friends, I wonder this morning, are you afraid of the dark? Are you afraid of the dark? And Some of us may be more scared with what creeps in those dark recesses of our homes as we make our way down the hallway at night. In the dark things are twisted and gnarled and seem different than they actually are. So what seems like an intruder lurking behind the chair is actually a coat hanging on a rack, and what looks like the beady eyes of a ghoul is actually just the lights off of the microwave reflecting in the window, and that creaking noise of deathly footsteps is really just your kid wanting another drink of water. I don't know why kids get those so thirsty at night time, but they do. All these things and more make the darkness of night an unsettling place to be, don't they? As we continue our slow but steady journey through the introduction of John's Gospel in these months, we come to a concluding statement of sorts for the first handful of verses. And it's a verse that drills down on all that John is intending and is, is, is seeking to set up for us to show us exactly where he's going. In some ways, the verse that we're gonna spend time unpacking today lays a foundational paradigm, a foundational framework for how we should understand the rest of John's gospel history of Jesus Christ. To say that more simply, John 1-5 that we're going to study gives us the foundation that John is going to now build his entire history of Jesus upon. And it all surrounds this idea of an unsettling darkness. The unsettling darkness of this world and the only light... That can truly cause this darkness to run. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me back to the Gospel of John. If you don't have a Bible of your own or maybe forgot yours this morning, you're more than welcome to use the Bible there in the pew that we've provided for you. If you're new to the Bible, check out page 833. That's the page that I'll be reading from here in just a moment. That's the first page of John's Gospel. And, friends, as always, if you're here this morning and you don't have a Bible of your own, we would love to give you a Bible as our gift to you today. There are some blue Bibles in the back windows uh, that are yours for the taking. If you need a Bible or you know a friend who needs a Bible, please avail yourselves to those. Once you get there, friends, let me invite you to stand once more out of honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read for us again this morning John 1 1 through 18, the whole introduction. upon grace for the law was given through Moses grace and truth came through Jesus Christ no one has ever seen God the only God who is at the Father's side he has made him known this is the word of the Lord praise be to God you may be seated friends as we take up God's Word again this morning the scriptures that are continually here in this passage centered on this word, I want us to really begin to consider what John is aiming to do. And all of that really centers, as I said a moment ago, on verse 5. And so what I'm going to do this morning is what I did back with verse 1. We're going to spend the entire sermon just chewing on this singular verse, trying to unpack what exactly John is getting at. And so as we take up this singular verse, I want us to break it down and understand it. Because as I've said, I think that this lays out the entire framework for understanding what John is able, aiming to convey in his gospel. Or to say that another way, John 1:5 helps us to understand exactly what Jesus was doing in creation and what he came to do in creation when he takes on flesh and comes among us. And I want to get at that by asking three questions of this verse this morning. If you would like to write them down, these are what the three questions I'm going to answer are, or this verse answers. I'm asking the verse answers. Number one, what is the light? What is the light? Pretty simple. Number two, what is the darkness? And number three, how does the light overcome darkness? What is the light? What is the darkness? And how does this light overcome the darkness? Now, as we consider each of these, friends, my... My prayer for us, my prayer for us has been the same all week is that that we would come to this text and that in studying it, God would cause us to walk in the light of Christ so that we may call to those in darkness, that they do not have to see and feel their way to the warmth of light, that they can turn and come to Christ and find it. So let's begin by considering the first question what is the light? And we can get at this by really rebuilding the blocks that John has already laid down. So so let me kind of recap shortly what John has already told us. Going back to verse 1, we are told about this Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. We see that the very Word of God has a personality, that, that He is somebody, and that this somebody is God and is with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's there that we learn fundamentally that this Word, whoever He is, is separate from God the Father, as it were, and at the same time is equal to the Father. That this Word is God, too. From there to last week, we considered how this Word was the agent of all creation. And we walked away realizing the dominion and authority that this Word, who is, as we find out down in verse 14, the very Son of God Himself, Jesus Christ, ...has dominion and authority over all creation... ...and particularly dominion over humanity. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through Him... ...and without Him was not anything made that was made. And in particular, we threw that idea at the, the creation of mankind. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. That Jesus made us on purpose and for a purpose... That is, the Word who was God, who is God, spoke, came forth, and and gave us life. And it is the same Word that takes on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ that speaks to us in these days and gives us new life. Why? Because the Word, the Son of God, is life Himself. He doesn't give us life like some magic token that He has in a little bag clipped to His waist. No. He gives life to all creation, namely to mankind, because He is life itself. Nothing but life can pour out of Him because it is at the very center of who He is. And for this is a wonderful gospel truth for us to hear, that what God made, that we have broken in our rebellion and our sin and our hatred towards God, Jesus is able to come and undo in His perfect life. Sacrificial death and triumphant resurrection. Why? Because life is found in Him, in Him alone. Which brings us back to today's verse. This light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what is John getting at here? That he says that this life, the Word that is life, that within this Word that is life is the light of men. And that this light that pours forth from the word that is the life shines in the darkness. Well, if anything, this verse helps us to understand exactly what Jesus was doing in creation. And what he came to do in creation when he takes on flesh and comes among us. We have to get at this, though, by first understanding what the light he's talking about here is all about. So what does he mean when he brings up the word light? In the previous verse he says, the life that resides in the Son of God, the word alone is the light of men. And now he says that this life that that pours forth, as I said a minute ago, shines in the darkness. So is he talking about some kind of metaphorical light? Like there's not an actual light, it's just kind of a metaphor that he's using? Or does he mean that there's an actual light that shines forth? That when Jesus was here on the earth walking around, there was that halo that Catholics like to put in their paintings around Jesus' head. Is this what we talk about when we, we used to sing back in the day? Shine, Jesus, shine. Is, is this the light that He's talking about? If you don't know that song, you've got you to get caught up. Because that one is a, it's a classic. Well, maybe all of us. But let's start here with the context. Remember, in studying our scriptures, context is king. We must understand what is going on in the verses and in in the passage around the verse that we're looking at to really understand what is being said. And so what has been talked about thus far here? Well, namely, we're coming off of a verse that is all about creation. Creation. That creation itself pours forth from this word of life. And now John writes that this word of life is light itself. So if this is true, we should be able to hold this up against ...the creation accounts that we have in our Bible... ...and see the word of life giving light. Is that what we find? Well, let's start with Genesis 1, page 1 of our Bibles. First five verses, here they are. You don't have to flip there, let me read them for you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, "...let there be light." And there was light, and God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. What do we find here? We find exactly what John has recalled, don't we? That in the beginning God created everything that we know, both in the heavens, which could mean in the skies above, or it could also be referencing the spiritual realm, the unseen realm. In the earth, the world as we see it and know it and experience it. And how did he do that? Through his word. God said. There is the word that was with God and was God. There he is right there in the, in the very first verses of our Bible. God said. And what is the first word that we hear revealed by this speaking God? Let there be light. Light. Light the first word of this word-centered creation. Genesis 1-4 then goes on to draw the distinction between the light and the darkness that it now chases away. It's what we know as day and night. And friends, I think some of us who are more science-inclined understand the importance of the separation of light and dark for our survival and the survival of the world. But others miss the depth the the real true depth of what God has just done, even in creating light itself and separating the two. To put it simply, life on this planet is completely dependent upon the light that God has provided. Whether it's the sun that provides essential warmth for the flourishing not just of humanity but of plants and animals, a sun that had to be perfectly placed into the cosmos, that were if it any closer would burn us up or any further away would send us into an ice age. Or consider the moon, our singular moon. Other planets have multiple moons, but we have one singular moon. And because of the gravitational pull towards that moon, it causes the tides of our oceans to come in and go out on a continual schedule like clockwork. Or the seasons that we roll through summer, autumn, winter, and spring. All of these are attributed to the light that God has created. And all of this was given by God's Word, by His speaking work of creation. It's no wonder then that the psalmist cries out in Psalm 33, 6-9, The Lord merely spoke, and the heavens were created. He breathed the word and all the stars were born. He assigned the sea its boundaries and locked the oceans in vast reservoirs. Let the whole earth fear the Lord and let everyone stand in awe of Him. For when He spoke, the world began. It appeared at His command. Or as we hear in Psalm 74, 16 and 17, both day and night belong to you. You made the starlight and the sun. You set the boundaries of the earth and you made both summer and winter. To the Jewish readers of John's gospel, this concept of God's creating life and that life being the light of men would have jumped right off the page for them. They would have read these first handful of verses in John's gospel and their brains would have ran straight back to the Genesis account, as it should for us as well. As Christians, we don't worship creation. We don't bow down to rocks or speak to trees. I mean, I guess you could speak to a tree, but we don't don't praise trees or sing to trees. No, we worship the Creator of those things. We take note as we look at rivers and rocks and leaves and ladybugs. We look at them and we see God's power. We see God's creativity. We see God's sustaining goodness of the universe that He made. And we worship Him. We cry forth and call forth for all of creation to join us, all creatures of our God and King. Because He is the life that gives light to all creation. But is this what John means? Maybe this is one big takeaway for those Jewish readers who were steeped in the Old Testament writings. Those were not the only people that John was writing to. See, he also wrote to Gentile listeners and readers, to those who were were pagan, who were outside of the covenant geographical people of God. For those who consider themselves highly intelligent in these days, well-versed in the things of philosophy and and, and logical reasoning, how would they have understood this verse? Well, they would have understood this verse in a more abstract way, or should we say a, a more spiritual way. And this is why John is such a masterful writer in his book. Because he's able to kill two birds with one stone here. He is not only laying out the light of creation as coming from Jesus Christ. But he's also giving us a foretaste of the light of redemption that proceeds from this word made flesh. John is telling us that, that this word of life, the Son of God... That in Him there is a light that proceeds that not only illuminates the world around us, not only moves in creation itself, but also illuminates hearts and minds and our very souls for salvation. How do we know that this is what John is trying to say? Because this theme of light overcoming darkness is one of the main themes of the entire gospel. It's going to come up over and over and over again. And Jesus himself in his own word brings it up repeatedly. In John 8:12, Jesus says again, it says, Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then in John 12 and 35, he says, So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. And then in verse 46 of that chapter he says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And then John, the writer of this history, for his part, continues the idea in his own letters. He says, as we heard in our scriptural assurance of pardon today, this is the message we have heard from him, meaning Jesus, and proclaimed to you. What is the message that he writes in his letter to, to encourage Christians? God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Or in 1 John 2, 8-11, through he picks the same theme up. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in Him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, And the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. And does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What does all of this mean when taken together? It means that John is laying out for us here not just the light that gives light to creation, but the light that gives light unto redemption. Friends, I hope you see the good, good news that's wrapped up in this reality that in Christ we have all the light that we will ever need for our lives. That in Christ we have the illumination of our hearts and our minds to the truth of God Himself that if we want to be enlightened unto who God is, Jesus Christ is the one that we must look to. Why? Because of who Jesus is. And friend, if if you're here this morning, and and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is the central truth that I want you to walk away with. Even before we talk about darkness, it's that within Christ... If you turn, if you repent of your sin and turn to Him, you will find all that you need to navigate this world. No, the world may not change around you when you turn to Christ. But your eyes will be changed. The eyes of your heart and your mind will be opened to be able to see the goodness and the graciousness of God. Why? Because He is the glorious life from which all creation flowed. Because we know, all of us in our own particular way, we are aware of the darkness in this world. But here, in Christ, we find that God has created a way for us to be brought back to Him. That in the coming of the light of life, Jesus, we find the one who shines into our darkness. So let's consider this darkness now. What does John mean by this? What is the darkness? Darkness like light is an idea that is brought up repeatedly in the Bible. We find it all over the place. Every time it's mentioned in the Bible, though, it's accompanied by what we find there in the very beginning, in the book of Genesis. Before the Word speaks light into existence, what do we find? Let's go back there for just a second, Genesis 1, 2. The earth was without form and void... And darkness was over the face of the deep. So here is the first mention in our Bible, the second verse of the Bible, of darkness. And what has accompanied this darkness? That the darkness spread over the face of all creation, and the darkness was marked by two things, being formless and void. That there is no fullness, and that there is no structure, nothing but chaos and emptiness. This is the mark of darkness all the darkness that we experience in our own lives and in this world are marked by those two things that there's no structure and it's utterly chaotic we see this same reality throughout scripture especially in the poetic and wisdom literature in the bible like the psalms and the proverbs proverbs 4:19 which says the way of the wicked is like deep darkness they do not know over what they stumble the way of the wicked is deep darkness. These people are stumbling in the dark and they don't even know what they're stumbling over. And it continues into the New Testament with Christ. He brings this up over and over as we're going to see, as I mentioned a moment ago in the Gospel of John. But the Apostle Paul, he takes it up a great amount too. Just consider what he says in Romans 1.21. We thought about this verse last week. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were what? Darkened. While we know, just like with the light, darkness is a physical reality, the main reason so many of us step on Legos in the middle of the night is because of darkness, right? If only we had a flashlight or something. But the biblical use of darkness is not mainly focused on that physical darkness but a spiritual darkness that has now overcome the world. The darkness that causes us to leave the light on is itself only a picture of what true darkness is, what it represents. It represents the unknown, the uncertain, the threat of emptiness and chaos itself. And to be in the dark, not physical dark, but spiritual darkness or mental darkness, to be in the dark is to be unaware to be confused, to be ignorant. A shot in the dark, as we say, is, is a last chance of hope with no certainty. If we hear about a dark movie, they aren't talking about the movie theater la- lights being shut down, but we're talking about a movie being gruesome or vile in nature. This idea of darkness, biblically speaking, represents death itself. And That's exactly what John means in the use of the word here in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines into the corruptness, into the vileness, into the uncertainty and the confusion and the formlessness and the chaos. Friends, it's the darkness that we're confronted with every day. As we look at the world around us, we are reminded of the present darkness in which we find ourselves, in which we must live And just to make a note here, while the darkness we experience in our own day may be particular to us and for some of us it feels overwhelming, this is not the first wave of darkness to sweep across the world. No, we find in Genesis 3 that the world that was created by the word of life, that good and perfect world became marred and twisted and broken when our first parents Adam and Eve turned away from God's word. And instead, listened to the word of Satan and fell from their place of light. Friends, this is key for us to remember. It keeps us from freaking out anytime anything goes crazy in our world. This is not a world that we are at war with. And this is not the first time darkness has been at work in the world around us. No, this is exactly what Paul gets at in Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. He was writing to a church there in Ephesus. Ephesus was was a city full of darkness. He says that that the war is not against the flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What Paul handed here to the Christians in Ephesians 6.12 is borne out in what John writes here in, in verse 5 of chapter 1, that the darkness that we experience in this world, in whatever time or whatever place we find ourselves, is the result of the work of Satan himself and the work of sin itself that has gripped humanity by the throat. And so, friend, we ought not be surprised at the darkness we face, at the darkness that encroaches against us. We ought not be surprised when we experience a continual downgrade of our culture and our society where darkness rules and reigns. And This is especially true for us to remember in these days as we have now entered into a world that that moved on from not really caring about what Christians do or say to now becoming increasingly angry and revolting against Christianity itself. I can't help but bring up again the three propositions of Aaron Wren, who's a public theologian. He has done the church today a great service in putting together what he has called the three worlds, which is a little way of understanding how the culture views Christianity have changed in America over the last 60 or 70 years. No longer are we in the days of the 1950s, really all the way up to the 1990s, where being a Christian was a positive thing. If you were a Christian during that time period, it meant something in the world. You could get a loan at a bank if you remember, a member of certain churches. Being a Christian meant that people would come and they would frequent your business. Being a Christian meant that you had respect. You were the kind of people that we would want to hold office. Because being a Christian in those times meant you were moral, you were respectable, and you were thought of positively. But as we moved on into the 90s, about 2014 we entered into a what Ren calls a neutral world where Christianity is just kind of blah we don't like you but we also don't hate you we'll just kind of put up with you Christianity is is one of many options it's kind of pick whatever flavor you want there you go Christianity is just kind of like out there you do your thing we'll do ours and we'll leave one another alone but that time too friends has come and gone And now we've entered into what Wren calls the negative world. A time when the world around us has come to have a negative view of Christianity. Being known as Christians is now a social negative. People will listen to you less. They will frequent your business less. We certainly don't want you to hold any public office. Christian morality is expressly hated and seen as a threat to the public good and the new morality of acceptance and affirmation of all. Which means that if you're here this morning and you're a Christian with biblical views on social matters, it might very well mean negative consequences for your life. Why do I bring this up? Because to see and know how the light of Christ will shine into our darkness, we must understand the darkness that we're in. We must know the dark room that we have entered into We must see the world around us and the world of Satan for what they truly are. And I'm convinced one of the chief works of darkness that Satan throws at Christians in particular today is the sin of apathy and laziness and comfort. That we have long walked in the fields of plenty and we have eaten our fill and we have laid down for a nap. We find ourselves in a time much like the men that Christian comes a cross in Pilgrim's Progress. After finding the cross and laying his burden down there, Christian comes upon three sleeping men with chained ankles. Their names were Simple, Sloth, and Presumption. And Christian wakes them and calls them to the cross, calls them to take off of their chains and lay them down to beware of Satan. But the three men think that there's no danger, and they settle back to sleep. And this is the same temptation for us friends to remain sleeping in chains ignoring the darkness that is prowling at the door. And yet for some of us our lack of understanding of the darkness in this world is not so much slothfulness or ignorance but it's because we are chained by our own sins of darkness, isn't it? See we often can get so wrapped up in the darkness of this world that we can miss the deceitfulness of sin in our own lives. The reality is that the problem isn't first and foremost out there, but in here. To put it simply, the same darkness in the hearts of the world was also and is also the same darkness in our hearts. To see this we need only to consider the list of sins that once marked those early Christians. Consider what Paul wrote to the church in Galatia there in Galatians 5, 19-21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He had more than he didn't even put in there. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, who of us hears that list and doesn't find at least one or two of those things that we took up even this past week? Now, children, children, how often do you find yourselves full of anger and division and envy, maybe among your siblings or your classmates, women? Were any of you given to jealousy or strife or impurity this week? And men, how many of us have struggled with sexual purity or drunkenness or rivalry or fits of anger? It's, it's, it's the reality that not one of us in, in, is full of light in and of ourselves. None of us merits the life that we desire so much. But we have all strayed into the darkness. And not just strayed, but we have lived there. We have made home there. We've tried to find comfort in the darkness of our souls. For some of us men, this has crept even into our own families as husbands and fathers. Brothers, step back and consider your families. Are they marked by darkness? Are they marked by emptiness and chaos? Or have you led your wife and children into darkness? by not taking up the calling that you were handed by Christ himself to fill our homes with a godly vision and to bring our homes to order around that vision. I would say that that every home that is marked by this darkness of being without vision and full of chaos begins right here. We have not had a vision for how we ought to organize and conduct our lives. We have not discipled our wives and equipped our wives to be godly women, even sometimes trying to absolve them of their duties. We have not modeled for our children strong yet tender hearts like our Father in heaven. As Christians, we must be careful here. Because we see the darkness of the world, yes. And even though we have come to know the light of Christ ourselves, We must honestly admit that we are still so tempted to run back into the darkness. This is why Paul so regularly brings this up with this list like in Galatians 5. This is why he so regularly brings up these themes of light and darkness in his commands to Christians in particular. Ephesians 5, he says this in verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. I love how simple Paul is sometimes. What do you need? Walk. Go forward as children of light. You're not in the darkness anymore. He goes on to say in verse 11 of chapter 5, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Why? Because of what he would go on to say to the Colossian church in Colossians 1.13. Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom. Into the kingdom. And so how do we get there? If we are to walk and to live in the light of Jesus, the Word, and we are to expose the works of darkness in the world around us, how do we do it? Because, friends, I, I know, at least up to this point, most of you stand in agreement with what I've said. But you stand in the same place that I often do. Yes, I want to walk in the light. I don't want to be and partake in unfruitful deeds of darkness. I want to take part in exposing those deeds so that we may call others into the light. But how do we do it? Well, This is actually what John is aiming to show us there back in John 1, 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So let's ask this last question of the passage. How does the light overcome darkness? Now, as I was meditating on this verse this week, as well as getting things ready for the Reformation service tonight at Grace Church, I was reminded of the phrase that became the rallying cry of the Protestant Reformers. It was the phrase, post tenebras lux." That's Latin. Yeah, that's right. I learned a Latin phrase. Post, tenebus, tenebrus, I almost got it wrong. Lux. It simply means this. After darkness, light. After darkness, light. It was the phrase that these men and women took up over 500 years ago to refer to God's work of bringing into the light the biblical truth and the biblical gospel in a time of utter spiritual darkness because of the darkness of the Catholic Church's own heresy and immorality. Literally, that's why we call it the Dark Ages. It crept not only into the church, but it flowed like rotten sewage into the very culture itself. But in God's kindness, He began to open the eyes of men and women all over Europe to the biblical gospel of Jesus Christ the life and death and resurrection of the One who came, the Word made flesh, and that this is the only biblical means of salvation for a sinful humanity. And friends, this is the same work that we need to take up ourselves as darkness constantly creeps in. That the church must always be seeking to rediscover the light that overcomes. And that's exactly what John tells us here, isn't it, in verse 5. He says that the darkness has not overcome the light, but that the light overcomes the darkness. We know this is the case by our own experience. Darkness and light are not so much opposites like big and little. No, darkness is actually the absence of light. But when light comes on, the darkness flees away. When light comes on, the darkness is always overpowered, overwhelmed, and extinguished. And that might very well be what John means here. I say might because this word that John uses for overcome also can have another meaning. Some of your translations may translate it as the word comprehend. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness comprehends it not. He's telling us then that the light, when it shines forth, the darkness is overcome and the darkness does not even understand what is going on. It is overcome and bewildered. But what does this actually mean? Friends, as we're going to come to see in the months and years ahead, walking through John's Gospel, this is what Jesus is all about. He is the light that overcomes the darkness. And friends, this is the cure to all our darkness here. It's the light of the world, Jesus Christ. See, for the glory of Christ, His beauty, His magnificent, utter astounding nature is found here in the way that he overcomes darkness in himself. He alone is the one who has power, who has the ability to conquer what feels so unconquerable to us. He alone can cancel our debt of sin that we we rightly owe and free us from the tyranny and the darkness of Satan. When John says the light that shines forth is in the life of Christ, overcomes the darkness, he is telling us that in Christ we find the lamp of salvation, the lamp of sanctification, and the lamp that will persevere us unto glory itself. And friends, I have to ask, do you know that light of life in your life? Have you welcomed the good grace of God through the light of Jesus Christ to shine mightily into your heart? to shine mightily into your mind, to shine mightily into your work, and do you shine it now forth yourself like a mirror against the sun? Are you amongst those that Isaiah writes of in Isaiah 9-2? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. The light shines forth for us and it alone can overcome the darkness. It alone must be the heartbeat for our own personal walk with the Lord, for our families and for this family of families here. It alone is the answer to the wanting world and the longing hearts. It alone holds out the true and everlasting life. It alone gives us the satisfaction and the rest That all of our hearts ache for. And do you know it? As Isaiah goes on to say in chapter 50, verse 10 Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Do you trust him? Do you return to the light every time you find yourself walking in darkness? This is the call of the Bible. The call of the Bible is not to dig yourself up out of the pit, but to look to the One who will reach down and pull you out Himself. The call of the Word of God is to not try to find your own set of moral matches to light your way, but to look to the One whose righteousness has been purchased by His own life and then given to you who has taken your death upon Himself on the cross. Have you felt the overcoming power of this light? Perhaps you think it's too good to be true. And it is for some. To those who walk in darkness, who refuse to turn and trust the Lord, who look to their own experience, they find it incomprehensible. Doesn't Paul tell us in 2 Corinthians 5? I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death and the other a fragrance from life to life. Friends, we ought not be surprised when those who are in the dark cannot begin to wrap their minds around what sin is. Who cannot begin to wrap their minds around the free grace of Jesus Christ that is lavished upon all who turn to Him. The world looks at the call of Jesus to die to yourself and follow Him as utter rubbish. We experienced this yesterday as the pastors and several others gathered with a group of Christians at a local coffee shop that was putting on an all-ages drag queen brunch. As we gathered there and sang and prayed and had conversation with those who were attending, it became increasingly clear that their understanding of what we were doing could only be tied to hatred and judgment, even though we continually and warmly And kindly offered them hope in Jesus Christ. Friends, this doesn't make sense to those in darkness. They see the call to turn from the world, to turn from Satan, to turn from sin, to turn from self, and to turn to Christ as judgmental, as hateful, that we are sinners and yet Christ died for us is a message that they do not want to hear. that we were rebellious and broken and yet Christ died to make us whole. I tried to convey this truth to the owner of this coffee shop in a letter I wrote to her this week. I concluded my letter by writing this. I wanna be as clear and as direct as possible about why we have been so vocal and why we will continue to be vocal in the days ahead. This is not an emotional response or a response that will just come and go. It is all grounded in what we believe to be true about Jesus. There are many beliefs about Jesus in these days. Would He be affirming? Would He stand as an ally? Would He start telling us all to stop judging? In the face of these questions, the way we as Christians answer them is by going to God's revelation of Himself to us in the Bible. And while we may stumble and fumble to answer those questions well, we do know that Jesus is our King. He is the King of all nations, and He is now seated in the heavens where He is ruling and reigning over all creation. And He has not been silent about these things. We believe that the only life and identity that matters in the end is not our sexual expression or identity. It is not in money or renown. It is not even in a certain nation or race. The only identity that matters in the end is whether or not we have submitted our lives including our sexuality, our ethnicity, our job, all of it, to Jesus Christ. And that is our plea, that all who would hear us calling and singing out, that whatever is said on Saturday or in the months and years ahead is this, Jesus Christ is King of all, because He died for our sins and transgressions and was raised from the dead, and is now seated in heaven, and that he promises true, everlasting life to anyone, and we mean anyone who would forsake the world and deny themselves, and come to him in love, trust, and submission. This is what we call the gospel, and we are praying that in the end, it is the thing that keeps ringing in your heart and your head. Friends, this is the hope that we hold out. This is what we hold out. Not that Jesus came to affirm who you were born to be, but that Jesus came so that you might be born again. Oh, God, have mercy on us in this. That our city and our nation, as it slips into further and further darkness, would cause Christians to become the city on a hill, a light that we would stop hiding under a basket. For Christ is the light of the world. He is the only hope for our darkened souls, not just the world, but but ours. Which leaves us with a lingering question. How should we take up the work of Christ as the flame for pushing back the darkness? Next week we'll see an answer to that in John the Baptist. So a bit of a cliffhanger here today. But for today, let us take up this light of Christ in our own lives. Let us repent and bask in the light of his grace. Some of us for the first time, others of us for the millionth time. Let's not forget who we are. The very ones who have the word of life shining our very paths. He is the word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. As Paul writes in Romans 13:12, the night is far gone. The day Is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us not be afraid of the dark, but put on the armor of light that is Christ Jesus, the Word, the Son, our Lord. Let us pray. Oh, God, we come before you. God over all, working and moving in ways that we know and that are beyond our wildest imaginations. God, we come before you in this time now as we prepare to take the supper once more, asking that the light of Christ would shine into our darkness. That as we are here today, perhaps discouraged and downtrodden, weak, wounded, sorrowful, feeling pressed, God, that the warmth of your grace would shine anew in our hearts and enliven us, awaken us, revive us once more so that we may cry out to all the world that Christ is the light, the light that overcomes the darkness. It is in his name we pray. Amen.